Hello all, and a customary warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that seeks out those obscure, forgotten and unfamiliar cases from the UK and the Republic of Ireland. I'm Paul, I'm the show's creator and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and it's great to have you guys all joining me here today. Hello to all new friends and listeners, welcome to the show, and I do hope that you find the episodes entertaining. Whereas all of you established enthusiasts, then of course, fantastic to have you here as always, because your continued support means the world. Cheers also for the continued reviews of the show and the comments that I've received on my social media from you guys. You really are the best. Plus shout outs and thanks to my latest Patreon supporters, Catherine Schroeder, Nina Colliver, Jason Smith and the returning Sassy Energizer. And of course, big thanks to my continuing supporters also. It's very much appreciated. And for anyone else who's interested in becoming a True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Patreon supporter, because it's the club to be in, trust me, then just seek out the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast on Patreon and see what being a supporter could bring you. There are now 10 bonus episodes currently available exclusively for supporters with a new one released every first of each month. And number 11 will be out in a couple of weeks. All details for interested parties can be found in the show notes lumped alongside the show's social media links. Plus I'm also in the early stages of sorting out an online merchandise store for the show. Now I have quite a few bits at home already but ever the perfectionist I'm still tweaking a little bit. And my spare room is starting to look a bit like a convention. When I get that done and dusted I'll let you know of course. It'll be the usual stuff, mugs, t-shirts, stuff like that. Now I'm pleased to be bringing you the promo this week of the podcast from a friend of the show and a name that will be familiar to several listeners, Andy Childlow Parish. Last series I recommended Andy's blog, No Remorse. It's a blog in which he looks at the cases of Britain's most evil killers and their horrific crimes. Well he's obviously got the taste for this now, because the blog has now become a podcast. That sounds like familiar circumstances to me, I must say. Neither have been out long and are still fledgling, but expect nothing but good things from these. I have to commend the choice of his cases so far. They won't be ones that are familiar to the casual student of true crime, but the tales are nonetheless fascinating and chilling. So here's Andy to explain some more about the show. My name is Andy. I am the writer and the host of the No Remorse podcast. No Remorse is a British true crime podcast which tells the disturbing stories of some of Britain's worst killers. No Remorse is a no-holds-barred show, so you can expect graphic descriptions of extreme violence. It is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Each episode will focus on one offender, or sometimes multiple offenders, who have committed crimes which have shocked the nation. Psychopaths, sociopaths, savages... Serial killers, spree killers and everything in between will be explored in great detail. You can find No Remorse on all major podcast providers including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and TuneIn. No Remorse is available on all good podcast platforms plus a link to both the podcast and the blog can be found with the show notes this week for the episode. It's also available on social media under the same moniker. As with all of the shows that I recommend, if you jump in and like the show, then please share the love around by leaving a very kind review. Thanks very much to Andy there.
So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a tale from the mid-1980s that spans a couple of areas of the UK and involves a savage and calculated crime, a devious mind and bizarrely, a 1970s UK TV situation comedy. As the story unfolds, that strange concoction will hopefully become clear. It's one that I've long since been aware of, and one that I hope you will feel, as I do, is the exact kind of case suitable for the show. It was always one that was going to end up on here. Please be advised as ever that this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find distressing or disturbing, and this week's also deals with the murder of a child, so extra discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look at the case of the Reginald Perrin murders. The moment that she walked into the house, Gail Coxon felt that there was something very, very wrong. It was a warm afternoon, Wednesday the 30th of July 1986, but the semi-detached house, number 25, in the Hazel Grove suburb of Longmead Avenue in Stockport in Greater Manchester, was eerily cold and quiet. Gail had come to the house to visit her brother Robert Healy, a 38-year-old self-employed driving instructor, but there was no sign of him, of his 40-year-old wife Greber, an auxiliary nurse at Steppenhill Hospital in Stockport, or of his 13-year-old stepdaughter Marie. There was no sign of the Healy dog Lassie either, and Mrs Healy's car was missing from the drive. Gail waited around for a while, thinking that the family may have taken the dog out, but after a considerable amount of time when no one come back, she decided to have a look for herself. After knocking at the front door and going to look in the back garden, there was no signs at all of anyone home. Using a key that she had for emergencies, or whilst the family were away, Gail Coxon let herself in intending to leave a note saying that she'd called round. The house was tidy, although for some reason the electricity had been switched off at the mains, with a clock in the living room showing that it had stopped at 4.45. Gail looked around downstairs and then tiptoed upstairs, looking into each room in turn, but it was the main bedroom that her brother and Grieber shared that caught her attention, because Gail found herself drawn to a patch on the wall that stood out from the rest of it. It looked for all the world as though someone had made a determined effort to scrub a patch of the wall adjacent to the side of the bed that Greber had slept on. It had clearly been scrubbed hard, but the efforts had not been enough. Faint traces of ominous-looking red splash marks were still visible. A closer look showed similar splashes on the bedside cabinet. Although there was nothing on the bedclothes, they appeared to have been freshly changed. On the floor directly beneath the staining, a fresh piece of bedroom carpet had also been cut out and freshly laid on the floor, making it stand out against the well-worn rest of the carpet. It hadn't been fixed down in place though, and carefully, Gail Coxon lifted the edge of it. Underneath, the carpet underlay was massively blood-stained. It was then that Gail spotted a note on the bedside table. In what she could clearly see was her brother's handwriting. It was addressed to Greba Healy and simply read as follows. Dear Greba, it seems I am unable to love you the way you want. I hope the fish and crabs eat my body. With mounting alarm, Gail Coxon decided it was time to call the police. 
Before long, Detective Superintendent Clive Atkinson of Greater Manchester Police was stood looking down at the master bedroom carpet of number 25 Longmead Avenue. It looked for all the world as though a dreadful crime had been committed in the bedroom, but to find out exactly what, obviously the primary concern was to find the occupants of number 25. It looked like someone had been murdered, but who? Had Robert Healy, in a moment of madness or a fit of depression, killed his wife and stepdaughter, and then gone off and taken his own life somewhere? If this was the case, though, where were the bodies of Grieber and Marie? There were also a number of other things about the scene that unsettled police. For example, in Marie's bedroom, investigators noticed that the single bed had been freshly made with clean linen, but a duvet and a red and white striped quilt cover and pillowcase were missing from the bed. A subsequent microscopic check of the mattress that the sheets had been placed on on the bed revealed the presence of semen. Now Marie was just a 13-year-old girl who liked ice skating and going to the cinema. She didn't have a boyfriend and was certainly not sexually active as far as anyone knew. So whose was the semen and where were the missing bedclothes? Police established that Grieber and Marie had last been seen alive on Monday the 28th of July by friends of the family, whereas Robert Healy had last been seen just the day before, Tuesday the 29th, when he'd sold his car to his brother-in-law for £2,000 cash. So if he was planning to kill himself, then why did he need the money? And his wife's car, a silver-blue Vauxhall Chevette, was also missing from the driveway of the family home. Where was that? A full description of the vehicle and its registration number, TEH-1998, was issued to all forces nationwide with the most urgent priority to trace it attached to the bulletin. The car had to be found. The following day, there was a further development, some 70 miles away from Stockport, on the coast of North Wales. A holidaymaker staying at Pontins Holiday Camp on the seafront in Prestatyn, North Wales, had had enough of screaming kids excited and enjoying the summer holidays, and had gone for a walk down to Lido Beach. And this is a picturesque beach pockmarked with sand dunes that borders the Irish Sea, and that windswept morning as he walked along the shoreline, he was the only person there. Or so it seemed, until his attention was drawn to a pile of clothes that were lying near the tide line. The trousers, jacket and shirt had all been neatly folded with a pair of shoes placed on top of them but there was no one swimming in the near vicinity and there was also no towel alongside the clothes which were sodden as though they'd been there for some time. To be honest it wasn't even the kind of day where someone would go swimming in the sea. So the holiday maker with a distinct uneasy feeling about what he'd found contacted the police and reported the bundle of clothing. Examination of the sodden bundle revealed a wallet in the inside pocket of the jacket and a check of the wallet's contents revealed a number of documents and a driving licence bearing the name Robert Healy, 25 Longmead Avenue, Stockport. There was also what appeared to be another suicide note addressed to Healy's mother which read I do not know what to do, I might as well die now. A search of the sand dunes on Lido Beach near to the former Tower Beach holiday camp, very near to where the clothes had been left, revealed a blanket that when examined later was found to contain dog hairs that matched those taken from the Healy home in Longmead Avenue. 
questioning local residents for any potential witnesses, the story that caravan owner Oswald Brodie had to tell was particularly significant. The previous day he'd been looking out of the caravan window when his attention had been drawn to a middle-aged man in swimming trunks walking out to sea. Now he thought it odd because that day had been cold and overcast and he watched as he saw the man place what Oswald thought was a beach ball into the water. The man had then retraced his footsteps until he disappeared from Oswald's sight and he didn't see him again. So in context with the discoveries at the Healy home, it looked as if Robert Healy had taken his own life and drowned himself off the North Wales coast. But then, where were Greber and Marie Healy? However, by the time Greater Manchester Police were informed of the discovery of Healy's clothes on Lido Beach, and officers were dispatched to make the hour or so journey from Stockport to Prostatin, they'd also made a number of discoveries that had proved very interesting, and that made them think again about the murder-suicide angle. Aside from the £2,000 that Healy had received from his brother-in-law for the car the day before, police had learned that earlier the same day, Healy had been into town and had emptied both his bank and building society accounts completely of cash. Police had also discovered that using a birth certificate that had been stolen from his brother-in-law and falsifying other documents, Healy had tried to obtain a new passport in a false name. So, had he faked his suicide and tried to leave the country? There was a crucial clue that made police firmly believe that this was the case discovered at the Healy home when forensic investigators had moved in. Alongside the bog-standard early 1980s movies that the Healy family had on VHS videotape, three videotapes containing recorded episodes of a 1970s BBC TV situation comedy were found. Now I love classic British comedy, I was brought up watching classic stuff as the Two Ronnies, Steptoe, Frank Spencer and consequently these are still things that I love today and I have a collection of myself at home because I still think that they're brilliant. Robert Healy was no different, he liked his sitcoms too. The series on the three tapes that he'd recorded was a 1970s sitcom called The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin. Now this wasn't one I particularly liked when I first saw it in a repeat many years after it had first aired, although it is widely considered a classic. It's a dark comedy based on a series of novels and it concerns a civil servant, tired of his repetitive life in the rat race, sick of his marriage and family, who comes up with what seems hit to him the only logical solution to escape the humdrum of his life, faking his own death. Sure that we've all been there, eh? So how does Reginald Perrin fake his own death in the show? It's seen in the opening sequence of every episode. He leaves his clothes on a beach, complete with suicide notes, so it appears that he's committed suicide. He heads into the sea, but he really leaves to start a new life to seek happiness. Over a few series, he ends up coming full circle and back in his own exact same life, back in the rat race that he tried to escape. Now if you think that seems worth seeking out, then have a look at it, you may enjoy it. I thought it was bollocks, to be honest. So Healy had nearly £4,000 in cash, large sum of money in 1985, and he had a video that just happened to contain a TV plot that his suicide could have been a carbon copy of. Too much of a coincidence indeed, that. On Friday the 1st of August, four days after the Healy family had last been seen, 
another piece of evidence came to light which appeared to support the police theory that Robert Healy was a double murderer and had faked his own death and gone on the lam. Grieber Healy's silver blue Chevette was traced to a car park near Birmingham Airport where a checker car park record showed that it had been parked there since the same day Healy's clothes were discovered in Prostatin on the beach. An examination of the vehicle revealed a large amount of blood staining in the piece of carpet that was lying in the boot, and when samples were taken and examined against other samples that had been collected from the Healy bedroom, they were also found to be the same blood group O. Police now firmly believed that Healy had copied the plot of the sitcom after murdering and hiding the bodies of his wife and stepdaughter. The amount of blood found all but confirmed to investigators that both were sadly dead. The following day, Greater Manchester Police held a press conference, with Superintendent Atkinson telling the packed room of assembled reporters that Healy was believed alive. Responding to questions from reporters who'd gotten wind by now of the police theory of a double murder and faked suicide, and the connection to the Reggie Perrin sitcom, Detective Superintendent Atkinson said, We cannot rule out the theory that he's copying Reggie Perrin. I'm making a personal appeal to Robert Healy to come forward and speak to me or to any police officer to relieve the anguish of his parents, his wife's friends and his stepdaughter's father. There's a very strong possibility that this woman and her daughter are now dead. If Mrs Healy and Marie were still alive, I would have expected some sightings of them or for them to have contacted their family. To all intents and purposes, this is now a murder inquiry. It had actually been run as though it was a murder inquiry almost from when police had initially been contacted. The finding of large bloodstaining in the bedroom and the attempt someone had obviously gone to to cover up the facts suggested this. But it was still a murder inquiry without any bodies. Photographs of the Healy family that show Robert, Grieber and a smiling Marie taken at what appears to be a wedding were widespread across the media following this and all police forces across the country were tasked to be extra on the lookout. Newspaper reports from the time are splashed with sensational headlines about what had been christened the Reggie Perrin case, and many carried an impassioned plea from Marie's father, Leslie Walker, for Healy to come forward. Healy's father, Robert Sr., meanwhile, broke his own silence, saying, My son is no killer. He wouldn't kill a cat or dog, let alone a human being. The police are virtually calling Robert a murderer and condemning him before they know what's happened. He's not a violent man and never has been. He's too timid a person to hurt anyone. I don't think the lad realises what agony he's causing the family. We just want him back. Then on 9th of August, ten days after the family had vanished, a motorist driving down the A5117 road that runs past the Elton Green area of Chester heading towards the North Wales border, decided to stop because he needed to use the toilet. As he was doing so, his attention was drawn to a duvet that was lying discarded in the lay-by where he'd stopped near Sawhall. Now a duvet is an unusual thing to find abandoned on the main road, surely, especially a quilt that still has a red and white striped quilt cover on it, and especially if the quilt is very, very heavily bloodstained. You tend to remember stuff like that, I suppose. Perhaps he was just a good Samaritan. Perhaps he'd been following the appeals in the press for the missing Healy family. And seeing this had triggered his memory. 
but he contacted police immediately and reported his find. Now the A5117 is a link road that back in 1985 led directly from the M56 motorway. Today the road is the main drag for anyone heading from North Wales to go to Cheshire Oak Shopping Centre by Ellesmere Port, which is an absolutely god-awful place. It's horrendous to park and everyone shambles about like they're reenacting the thriller video there. It's not for me, give me online shopping any day. But in 1985 this road was part of the main route that one would have needed to take driving from Stockport to get to the North Wales coast. And sure enough the bloodstained quilt was soon identified as being the one that had gone missing from the Healy house, the one from Marie's bedroom. The blood stain into it matched the blood found in the house and Grieber's car. A mass police search was immediately carried out in the area looking for the bodies of Grieber and Marie Healy or perhaps even any signs of disturbed earth which could mean shallow graves. An RAF reconnaissance unit equipped with thermal imaging cameras that could detect human remains was even brought in and scoured the area but nothing was found. Over the next few days the search areas moved on from here to an area around Stanny near Ellesmere Port after reports emerged that a car similar to the one belonging to Grieber Healy had been seen parked up in the area on the day Healy's clothes were found and although the woodland and surrounding areas were scoured this too drew a blank. Campsites near to where the clothes had been found on the beach were also searched now with police grimly and definitely looking for the bodies of Grieber and Marie Healy. But there was nothing, despite a mass search in all of these areas, there were no signs of the mother and daughter's bodies. Not for nearly a full week after the blood-stained continental quilt had been found. The areas of Kerwis and Tremerchion in North Wales are especially beautiful parts of the North Wales countryside. I may sound biased because it's my home area, but they are proper lovely. There isn't very much in either of these two places, which are located a mile or so off the A55 coast road, but the scenery and the greenery is truly spectacular, and both are popular with ramblers and dog walkers alike. One such person was 72-year-old Bill Douglas, who lived in Kerwis for most of his life and knew the areas like the back of his hand. There were a variety of walking routes that Bill used to take his dog out on each day and a favoured long walk of his was a route through a local wood known as Coid Bron Vower, which was a place Bill went a couple of times each week. On Monday the 11th of August Bill had walked his dog here and during his walk had noticed a large patch of disturbed soil next to an overgrown path in a remote part of the wood, although he'd thought nothing of it at the time. It was only over the next few days that he'd read all of the publicity concerning the missing mother and daughter from Stockport and the searches that were being carried out around nearby Prostatin following the discovery of clothes purportedly belonging to Robert Healy on Prostatin's Lido Beach. By the afternoon of Friday the 15th of August, Bill's suspicions had nagged at him about the disturbed earth that he'd spotted, enough to make him go back to the scene with his dog, and sure enough, the disturbed soil was still exactly as he'd last seen it. Having thought for days about this, he now saw the scene for exactly what it was. Not only was it disturbed over a fair-sized area, there was also a mound of soil next to it, 
that he hadn't taken in at the time. Bill was looking down at what was clearly a grave. Perhaps braver than most people, because I don't know if I would go up and do this, Bill went up and prodded the soil with a stick, and then recoiled in horror as he uncovered a human hand sticking out of the leaves and moss. It's a proper hammer horror moment that, eh? I would have proper bricked it then myself, and fair play to Bill, he shot off and alerted police. When police got to the scene, the area was sealed off, and a full-scale excavation and forensic examination began. It soon became apparent that the shallow grave Bill had found contained the naked, decomposing remains of two females, covered by less than 12 inches of soil. Although the warm summer temperatures and wild animal interference had degraded the bodies somewhat, there was enough left of them, even at a cursory examination, to see that the bodies were that of an older and younger female. With a proximity to where the hunt for the missing Healy family was undergoing, police sadly convinced that their search had come to an end, the bodies were soon identified as being that of Grieber and Marie Healy. The bodies were removed from the scene and taken to Glancluid Hospital in nearby Bodlewithan, where post-mortems were carried out on both Marie and Grieber. Home office pathologist Dr Donald Waite discovered that Grieber Healy had been brutally battered to death and had died under a hail of frenzied blows from something heavy and blunt. She was found to have no less than 15 separate fractures of the skull. It was shattered like an eggshell. Marie had suffered a different fate. The pathologist was to find evidence that she had literally had the life choked out of her, strangled in a powerful grip. Her injuries were likened to those that one would expect to see in the aftermath of a road traffic accident. It was thought likely that Marie had also not died quickly, but had instead fought fiercely for her life, and that she might have experienced up to a full five minutes of struggling to live before she finally succumbed to her injuries and died. It was also noted during each autopsy that both women had had sexual intercourse shortly before each died. So for a disappearance that the nation had been following, but that had slipped back down the columns, this was now a definitive murder inquiry, and the story was back in the headlines. And with police as certain as they could be that Robert Healy had faked his own death, alerts were tightened at airports, train stations and ferry terminals. There was speculation that Healy may have already left the country days before, and now was living under an assumed name somewhere in Europe even perhaps living with several other British fugitives from the law in what was known at the time as the Costa del Crime in Spain. The facts were actually far much less exotic. On Sunday the 17th of August 1986, just two days after the bodies of Grieber and Marie had been found, a balding man, shabbily dressed and bearded, joined the queue of visitors at the reception desk of London's New Scotland Yard. When it came to his turn to be seen, he told the desk officer on duty, I've come to give myself up. I believe you want to see me. You're looking for me over the murder of my wife and daughter. He then identified himself as Robert Healy, 38 of 25 Longmead Avenue, Hazel Grove, Stockport, and sat back down in the waiting area. The man was arrested and placed into a holding cell, whilst the double murder inquiry up in Manchester were informed. 
When detectives from there arrived to take Healy back to Manchester, they were not sure at first if they had the right man. He was bearded, and although he bore a passing resemblance to the wanted man, the beard did wonders to disguise him. After the detectives had introduced themselves, the man reached into the inside pocket of the jacket he was wearing, why his pockets had not been emptied really has never been explained, and pulled out a well-worn red notebook. Handing it over to detectives, he said, I'm Robert Healy, it's all in here, this is my murder diary. The wanted man had given himself up. Healy had grown the beard to disguise himself and alter his appearance after his photograph was widespread plastered across the daily newspapers and broadcast on television. It transpired that Healy had never left the country at all. After killing his wife and stepdaughter, he buried their bodies in Coy Bronvar Wood, staged a fake suicide, and had then driven his wife's car down to Birmingham, where he abandoned it in the car park where it was found. Healy had then caught a train from here down to London, where he'd spent the past 19 days living in a derelict bedsit in Harrow Road in the northwest London district of Kensal Green, using the false name of Morris Davis Beach. Healy claimed that he'd spent much of the time between the murder and giving himself up, rarely venturing out of the bedsit, wondering what his next move would be. Healy claimed to police that on the occasions that he did venture out, he'd spend much of his time in churches praying. Several times he was on the verge of surrendering himself to police, and at least once he'd been in St Bride's Church just off London's Fleet Street when two police officers had walked in. Healy believed that he'd been discovered, but was to tell detectives, I thought they were coming for me, but they didn't even give me a second glance and walked out again. On one occasion he claimed that he'd even walked past Downing Street, hoping to be recognised. Life as a wanted man proved far too much for Healy, and 19 days after killing his wife and stepdaughter, he gave himself up. He obviously wasn't any Richard Kimball, this guy, was he? So what drove Robert Healy to kill his wife and daughter in such a way? Healy told the detectives that he'd killed his wife in a spur-of-the-moment attack after she'd taunted him about his lack of sexual prowess. He told how the couple had met in 1984 through a Lonely Hearts advertisement in the local newspaper and had begun a relationship. Both he and Grieber had been unlucky in love before. Healy, a father of two, had been divorced since 1982, whilst Grieber herself had been married twice before. Nevertheless, this didn't put either off, and by late 1985, the couple had married in a low-key ceremony. Almost from the start, however, the marriage had not gone well and was soon in trouble. According to Healy, Grieber had told him constantly throughout their relationship that he was useless in bed and he couldn't satisfy her. She was also habitually violent towards him, attacking him both verbally and physically, and on at least one occasion throwing a takeaway meal and a can of lager over his head. Healy had carefully documented this in the notebook that he passed the detectives and told them, On the night I killed her she ridiculed me, saying I never wanted to make love to her, I only wanted sex. She accused me of fantasising about someone else. Healy claimed that after he and Grieber had had sex on the evening of Monday the 28th of July, he'd then fallen asleep for about three hours, but had woken up just after midnight feeling upset and tormented about the row that the couple had had earlier. He went on to say how, in almost a dream, in his words, 
He went downstairs to the kitchen and grabbed the rolling pin, then went back to the bedroom and started to hit Grieber over the head with it. Hit is an understatement. She was found to have 15 separate skull fractures. The wounds must have been absolutely horrendous, and they really don't bear thinking about, do they? It was then, according to Healy, that Marie came into the bedroom after being awoken by the sound of her mother's screams. He claimed that he'd grabbed the girl by the throat and squeezed, whilst at the same time continuing to batter her mother to death with the rolling pin. He said, When I let go of Grieber, there was no life left in Marie. I didn't realise how easily Marie had died. I'd not wanted to kill her, I just didn't want her to see what had happened to her mother. Healy's account was that he'd then spent five hours trying to remove signs of the murder from the house and bedroom. Placing the bodies of Grieber and Marie onto Marie's bed, he'd then scrubbed the bedroom wall and blood-spattered cabinet, and then cut out a piece of leftover carpet to replace the part in the bedroom that was sodden with Grieber's blood. He'd then calmly written notes cancelling the newspaper and milk deliveries to the house, and had then written the false suicide note, leaving it on the bedside cabinet. Following this, Healy had then loaded both bodies into the boot of Grieber Healy's Chevette and drove towards North Wales, heading down the M56 motorway. As he was driving down here, he disposed of both Grieber and Marie's clothing out of the car window en route before reaching the A5117, where he disposed of the now heavily bloodstained duvet that had contained both bodies in the lay-by near Sawhall. Healy had then driven on until he got to the A55, where he turned off and made his way down the remote roads past Kerwis to Coibron Vow Wood. Here he'd parked up in a lonely spot, and one by one had carried the bodies of Grieber and Marie into a remote part of the wood, where he buried them together in a shallow grave. He made another stop at a location a bit further up the A55, where he claimed he'd buried the bloodstained murder weapon, and had then made his way to Prestatin, leaving a pile of his clothes on the beach, and another suicide note hidden inside his wallet. He finally then set off, firstly to Birmingham where he left the car, and then on to London, planning to start a new life. Later that evening, Robert Healy was charged with the murders of his wife and stepdaughter, and the following Tuesday, August the 19th, magistrates at Stockport remanded him in custody for a further seven days. During the three-minute hearing, Healy stood silently as the charges were read to him. Grieber and Marie were buried in a joint funeral in the hometown of Leek in Staffordshire on the 1st of September 1986, where a large crowd of mourners attended a sombre service. There was no floral tribute from a remorseful Robert Healy. By that time, he was of course on remand in custody, awaiting trial for both murders. Healy went on trial at Liverpool Crown Court on the 23rd of March 1987, where he entered a plea of not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. If Healy thought that his diary, all of it written after the crimes were committed, would somehow portray him as a victim, a man driven to the point of madness by a persecuting, abusive and violent spouse, then he was badly, badly mistaken. Counsel for the Prosecution, Brian Leveson QC, outlined to the court that handing the police his battered red exercise book containing a diary of events was a fatal mistake for Healy, 
because it didn't show the actions of someone who was temporarily insane, rather it showed the actions of a remorseless, calculating killer. The act of writing the diary itself proved that. These were not entries entered as and when, it had all been accounted after the murders. Mr Levinson told the jury, The diary entries were designed to paint a portrait of a man possessed, a poor demented creature who didn't know what he was doing. But according to his own account, it took him five hours to try and clean the house, after which came an elaborate plan to cover its tracks with a fake suicide. Hardly the actions of a madman. Mr Leverson put it to the court that on the night of the murders, Healy had raped Marie in her own bed. When he was informed by detectives that Marie's autopsy revealed that she'd had sexual intercourse shortly before death, Healy had denied any and all knowledge of it. But he couldn't explain how semen, found after a comparison to be most likely belonging to him, had been found on her mattress. Throughout the trial, Healy would often sit weeping or with his hands covering his ears when evidence was given by the prosecution witnesses that he found especially uncomfortable. He especially broke down when Dr Donald Waite, the pathologist who'd examined Grieber and Marie's bodies after they were found, gave evidence at the trial and told the jury that he refuted Healy's version of events of the murder, as it appeared both women had met their deaths while lying down. Healy was inconsolable when Dr Waite said that the injuries to Marie resembled those he'd seen on victims crushed to death in road accidents, and that it may have taken her up to five whole minutes to die. In a final attempt to win sympathy from the jury, Robert Healy agreed to undergo a cross-examination in the witness box. He turned on the full works here, shaking like a leaf and weeping throughout as he told the jury of his failing marriage. We would row constantly, sometimes arguments could last for a week. I'd buy endless bouquets of flowers to try to patch things up, or often leave a single red rose in a car when she worked at the hospital. Grieber had a funny way about her which I couldn't understand, but I did not want to lose her because I loved her. She started saying things about my family and labouring the point constantly. She started to become obsessive towards me. I must be there, constantly, all the time. Often after sex she would storm off into the garden and refuse to come in, shouting, You don't want me, you don't love me. When asked outright by Leverson if he'd been engaging in sexual intercourse with Marie, and whether he'd killed her to prevent her from exposing him, Healy replied, Nothing of the sort. Healy then described the killing of his wife and stepdaughter. He said it was as like a film, like I was watching myself on television. He went on, I didn't plan it, I was upset by her words. I felt like screaming and felt frustrated. I stared at things, objects. I saw the rolling pin and picked it up. I didn't know what I was doing. I went upstairs to our bedroom and walked round the bed, then hit her on the head with it and she jumped up. She said nothing, she didn't scream, she just moaned. I hit her again, I don't know how many times I hit her. Eventually she was down on the floor. Then Marie walked in and I told her to get out and my hand struck her face. She went out and came straight back in again. I didn't want her to see her mother on the floor so I grabbed her by the throat and pushed her up against the wall. The next thing I remember she was down on the floor. I don't know how long it was before I realised that both were dead. Healy then put into operation his clean up body disposal and staged the fake suicide. 
Suggesting that he derived the inspiration from the Reginald Perrin TV series, Mr. Leveson puts a Healy, does not the Perrin character walk into the sea then start a new life with a new name and a beard? Healy replied, yes, but I didn't get the ideas from the program. Okay then, right, even the beard? Lion bastard. In his summing up, Mr. Leveson launched a second fierce attack on the now sobbing Healy, telling the jury, I tell you bluntly that Healy killed his wife after no provocation whatsoever, and that he killed Marie after having intercourse with her. The proper verdict in this case are guilty on both counts of willful murder. John Hugel QC for the defence, largely quiet throughout the trial, retorted, The case is upsetting for many reasons. One is the sheer ordinariness of everyone concerned. It is all so ordinary. You may think you've seen a tortured soul before you. He is a man in considerable distress, and rightly so, because in any view, he has committed a dreadful crime. After a week-long trial, it took the jury just three hours on the 30th of March 1987 to decide that they unanimously agreed with Mr. Leveson's summing up. This was no death as an accidental result of a person suffering extreme mental turmoil pushed to the limit. They believed that Healy was an evil sexual abuser who had cold-bloodedly murdered his wife and stepdaughter and had plotted an elaborate scheme to hide his crimes. All of his tears and remorse was an act and was insincere. Robert Healy was found guilty of murder on both counts in unanimous verdicts. As the verdict was announced, Healy turned away shaking and burst into tears. Mr Justice McNeil, presiding, told him, You know that there is only one sentence. The sentence fixed by law upon conviction for murder is that on each count, to be served concurrently, you will go to prison for life. And following the verdict, it was revealed to the court that Healy had a criminal past. They discovered that he'd received two years probation after twice being convicted of inciting young girls to commit acts of gross indecency in 1982, with the convictions concerned involving two girls aged just 11 and 13 years old. The 13-year-old girl had been cycling along a remote country lane when Healy had accosted her and had exposed himself to her, masturbating. The 11-year-old had had a similar experience. Detective Superintendent Clive Atkinson, the detective who'd led the hunt for Healy, wondered if a sexual motive was what lay behind the tragic deaths of Grieber and Marie. It was considered most likely that the perverted Healy had been paying unwelcome attention to his young stepdaughter, and may have indeed been involved in sexual relations with her. Had he turned to murder when she threatened to tell her mother about this, or had Grieber found out that Healy was abusing her daughter and threatened to go to police? Healy stuck to his story that this is not true, and he has ever since, but it's not stretching credibility that if this was the case, Healy might choose to kill rather than face the inevitable prison sentence that would surely be coming upon a second conviction for sexual offences against minors, especially knowing the shitstorm a sex offender would get in prison. No way could Healy face that. So who was or is Robert Healy? He was born to a Stockport family in 1949, where from his earliest years he's remembered as being shy and introverted described as a bit of a wimp 
who refused to stand up for himself when confronted by other children. Unremarkable through his schooling, he went to Stockport's Reddishvale Secondary School on Stockport's Reddishvale Road before he left to join the Merchant Navy in 1966, signing up for an initial seven-year term. Healy seemed to enjoy this as a career, reaching the rank of Petty Officer and even signing on for a further 22 years when he came to re-enlist following completion of his initial term in 1973. Healy had married at some point during his naval service, but this career was to come to a crashing end in 1978 when he suffered a nervous breakdown. He left the Navy as a result, and he and his wife returned to Stockport with their two young children, where Healy found work as a mechanic at a Stockport Saab dealership called Anderson Motors. He wasn't a great success at this, however, and was remembered as being sensitive, timid even, not totally not a fit for the brazen, macho, uncouth world of a 1978 garage. He was also actually quite incompetent. An incident that involved Healy starting the car on a raised ramp while he was in it led to the vehicle crashing down to the floor, after which he cried and needed to go and lie down shaken. He'd left the garage soon after this incident in December 1978 and had started work as an operating technician at the Amoco Oil Refinery in Milford Haven in South Wales the following January. For three years he held this role down, but his job and his marriage had ended by 1982. It was that year that 33-year-old Healy was convicted of indecent exposure and inciting a 13-year-old girl to commit an act of gross indecency when he sort of jumped out and flashed at her, masturbating. Healy received two years probation for these offences. Unsurprisingly, this is a pretty valid reason for a marriage ending, I think. There's no record of Healy having any other contact with his children following this, perhaps because his wife wouldn't allow it. Understandable, I think, after a betrayal such as that. I wouldn't, certainly. So with no wife or kids and no job, Healy went back home to Stockport and tried to rebuild his life by setting himself up as a self-employed driving instructor. 18 months later, in early 1984, Healy placed an advertisement in the Lonely Hearts column of the former Stockport Express advertiser, which was answered by the woman who was to become his second wife, Grieber. Grieber had two marriages behind her by the time she'd met Healy, first in the 1960s to a man named Leslie Walker, which had resulted in the birth of a daughter, Marie, in 1973. When this marriage ended in divorce, Grieber shortly afterwards met and married a man called Edward Malkin, but this also didn't last for very long. She had a period off men for a while before deciding to get back onto the dating scene, and at the beginning of 1984, answered a promising sounding advert in the local newspaper from a self-employed driving instructor. From the start though, Healy and Grieber's relationship was on and off like a light switch, punctuated by arguments and separations over the rest of 1984. Yet they always got back together, and in January 1985 they decided to get engaged, because that fixes everything, doesn't it? Grieber even made a joke about a track record with relationships to a friend of hers and swore to make a third marriage work, even if it kills me. Sadly, Grieber could never have imagined just how prophetic those words would prove. Healy and Grieber were married in November 1985, but this was to be no match made in heaven, 
the marriage was soon in serious trouble, even after such a short period of time. One blazing row had especially attracted the attention of neighbours in the close-knit avenue where the family lived, and the next day gossip especially was rife, when Grieber tried to leave the house and was forcibly prevented from doing so by her husband. Neighbours also knew that Healy had left his wife at least twice in the short period of time that the family had lived there, and a likely reason for this was revealed at the trial. Only the month before the murders, the Healy's had taken a holiday to Mallorca in the company of a close friend of Grieber's, Sandra Bailey. Sandra was to give evidence at Healy's murder trial that, over the holiday, Healy had displayed what she thought to be an unhealthy attachment to his stepdaughter, paying her noticeably more attention than what would be expected as normal in a family relationship. Once, during the holiday, Sandra had observed Healy saying something to Marie on the beach. She was unable to hear what Healy had said, but she did hear Marie's response, because it was said in a raised voice. Why me? It's always me. Why not my mum? Now put that together with the fact that Sandra noticed that whenever Marie left the beach to go back for a shower, Healy was right behind her, quickly following her and leaving Grieber to lug all of the beach stuff back to the hotel. And what conclusion do you come to? Grim, eh? Sandra had noticed this happening more than once, and although she personally didn't like Healy because she thought he was a wrong'un, she had never mentioned any of her concerns to Grieber in case it was something that may have been misinterpreted. In the light of later events, she was later on to massively regret this decision, but how often have any of us wished that we'd done or said something with the benefits of hindsight? Remember who's the bad guy here. Poor Grieber was right about her husband fantasising about someone else, but it was someone that she would never have guessed or hoped for. Just over a month later, the Healy's had gone missing from their home, murdered by a man for whatever reason who thought he could be Reggie Perrin. Of course, this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment killing. Healy's name faded from the public conscious over the next 19 years of his sentence, but in 2006, a High Court judge, Mr Justice Gibbs, ruled on the minimum term Healy must serve, saying... It can be inferred his motives for the killings arose out of his sexual activities within the home. He took elaborate steps to cover his tracks, burying the victims, leaving a false trail suggesting they'd left and faking suicide. Sitting at London's Royal Courts of Justice, the judge ruled that Healy must serve 20 years behind bars before he could be considered for release on parole. Mr Justice Gibbs said had Healy been sentenced under current rules and guidelines, the seriousness of his crimes meant that a whole life tariff would have been arguable in his case. However, the judge added that the sentencing rules in place in 1987 had to be applied to the case and that a minimum term of 20 years imprisonment was warranted. From that, the time he spent in custody on remand awaiting trial, seven months and 12 days, must be deducted, meaning that he could have been considered for release on parole from September 2006. 19 years and 138 days after he was sentenced. Healy had admitted subsequently that he was guilty of murder, and he had acknowledged that the defence argument he'd advanced at his 1987 trial, that Grieber had provoked him and that there was a lack of intent to kill Marie, were false. 
There is evidence of good progress towards rehabilitation in prison, the judge said. So once Healy had served his 20-year tariff, he could be freed if the parole board were sufficiently convinced that he posed no further public threat. Robert Healy is most likely released today. He subsequently long ago admitted his guilt and has not come into the headlines in the 31 years since he was convicted of the brutal double murder. Why would he not be released when we hear stories of people guilty of just the savage crimes being released long before? If he is out now, and I was unable to determine this status while I was researching this episode, he will remain on life license for the rest of his days, subject to prison recall if he ever puts a foot wrong. I sincerely hope that the time and the weight of his actions have changed Robert Healy if he has been released. I would also hope that part of the good progress towards rehabilitation whilst in prison has been serious and extensive work on the sex offenders treatment programme that's cured him of his paedophilia. Because let's not dress it up in any way, this is what this guy was, a paedophile. Two offences of gross indecency against minors, and even if his claim that he wasn't involved in sexual relations stroke abuse with his stepdaughter Marie, he wouldn't explain the presence of his semen found on a mattress, nor would he explain, or is there any explanation for really, him having sexual intercourse with her. I considered the following possible theories, but I must as ever stress that these are just that, theories. Robert Healy had, perhaps even still has, an unhealthy interest in young girls. I believe that this interest led to the breakup of his first marriage, and that when he placed the advert in the Stockport Express advertiser, he was attracted to Grieber perhaps by her, but perhaps by the fact that she had at the time a ten-year-old daughter. Undoubtedly, he didn't share his past convictions with Grieber. I believe that he groomed the child over a number of years. Even the diary entries written in the weeks after he'd killed both women give you the impression that he was besotted with the young girl. He writes of her even after her death in glowing terms. One diary entry from the Red Exercise book went as follows. I worshipped the ground that she walked on. As time went on though, she drifted away from me. Gone were the days where she'd leave me a note saying I love you. I became irrelevant in her life. She told me she resented me and wanted a real father. But she was still my special little girl. She was a girl I would have gone to any lengths to please. I would not kill her intentionally. As though he'd put her on a pedestal, what do you think? When I read the entry, I got the impression he was writing as though he considered Marie a lover that had spurned him, not an adolescent young girl at the age where she may understandably become difficult, a teenager. That's how it sounds to me anyway, and likely how his sick mind considered her. So I believe that he'd been abusing her for a while, and that fateful evening he'd slept with Grieber, then crept into Marie's bedroom when his wife was asleep. Perhaps he'd had intercourse with Marie, as he may have been doing for a while, and had been discovered in the act that evening by Grieber. A furious row had then occurred. Perhaps Grieber had even attacked Healy with a rolling pin, and in retaliation he'd killed her, battering her senselessly. Perhaps Marie heard this from her bedroom, too terrified to move. Can you then imagine her terror when a blood-stained Healy came into her bedroom after killing her mother, ready to do anything, even the unspeakable, rather than go to prison? 
it doesn't really bear thinking about, does it? Perhaps even Healy had been planning to leave Grieber and take Marie with him, in his sick mind thinking that she'd be willing to start a new life with him. Perhaps Marie refused and he then killed Grieber when she threatened to go to police about him being an abuser and he killed Marie to stop her going to the police. Not really the actions of someone who would do anything for his special little girl, is it? Whatever the exact sequence of events, and we only have Healy's version of the events to go off, this was a horrendous calculated crime and there's no justification whatsoever for killing a mother and daughter and then staging such an elaborate plot to escape justice. If in a fit of madness, yes, maybe, but real madness would have surely led Healy to give himself up immediately. Madness isn't obtaining as much money as you can the day before. Madness doesn't stage a fake suicide and write false suicide notes. Real madness is like the case of Michael Taylor, featured in the Osset Exorcist murder episode, the very first episode of the show. That's proper bananas. That's a proper case of someone just snapping like that. No, Healy's crimes were contrived, cowardly and pure evil, and it was only that Healy himself didn't have the mental strength to flee the country when it came to it, and the pressure of the hunt for him screaming at him from the newspapers became too much that he gave himself up. It could have been much different, and had he left immediately, he may have left the country and actually begun that new life. He may never have been captured, he may even have been living next door to you today under an assumed name. I do believe that Healy committed other sexual offences over the years. You have to remember that he spent a period of 12 years in the Navy. Think of everywhere that he could have lived and served in that time. I'd imagine that there'd be a number of offences such as flashing or indecent suggestions that Healy's responsible for, although these may be of such a minor nature that he would likely never face any prosecution for them. Perhaps many of them even went unreported. I just don't think a leopard can change its spots like that. And if this has always been his thing, I fail to see how it can have been changed now. It's what floats his boat. Perhaps I'm being deliberately cynical, and if I'm wrong, then hey, I don't mind being proven wrong. I can always hold my hands up and admit I am. But last season on the show, when we looked at the case of the horrific murder of Catherine Gowin, we learned that her killer, Clive Sharp, was just one of the many prisoners who'd done extensive work on the sex offender treatment programme whilst he was incarcerated, and he was then released, only to go on to rape and kill Catherine in the most horrific circumstances. And he's not unique. A massive percent of these offenders who've completed this programme went on to re-offend. So is Robert Healy one of these? I wouldn't want to take the chance having him on the streets to find out. Would you? Sadly, due to the passage of time since his conviction, and if the ruling in 2006 has been upheld, he most likely today is free and walking the streets. I know that the majority of the episodes of the show that deal with horrific murders have me condemning the guilty parties vocally for their crimes, but I must explain that I do that where I feel it's warranted. I feel great empathy for the victims of any of these events, and that condemnation is more than warranted here in this case. Marie could have had a family of her own today. Grieber could have been a grandmother, perhaps even a great-grandmother by now. But because Robert Healy had an unhealthy, perverted obsession, neither of them got the chance, and then tried his best to save his own skin, get away with his crimes, and start a new life. Any amount of prison time 
surely isn't long enough for something as callous as that, I don't think. What do you all think? This week's episode was one of those times that it started off being the latest Patreon episode, but it spiralled into an episode of the regular series. It was always one that I had planned to cover, but researching it I went proper down the rabbit hole and came up with enough to make a regular show episode. I have a big working list of cases, as I've said before on the show, and so far this series, I haven't actually touched the list. They've all been ones that I've read about and thought, that's gotta be an episode. So that's how it goes sometimes. Because this one is pretty near to me too in parts, I've been able to go on location with the case also. I managed to visit Coy Bronvar Woods, where despite the grim reason that I've headed there, I had a very pleasant walk in the autumn sunshine. I did get to take a video from the scene, which will be uploaded to the Facebook group, so it helps contextualise the locations involved. I also managed to go to Lido Beach in Prostatin, where again, I filmed this stretcher beach where Healy left his clothes to stage his fake suicide, so both of those videos will be there soon for you guys to have a look at. Please get in touch if you want to discuss the case of the Reggie Perrin murders. I would, as always, value your input and feedback about the episode. Don't mind where you do it either. You can email me about it, get in touch through Twitter or the Facebook group of the show. I'm often about and will always get back to anyone getting in touch. If you don't already follow the show, then I'm offended and you're off my Christmas card list. No, I'm just kidding. You can find me by looking up the True Crime Enthusiast or I've done all of the hard work for you because the social media, Instagram, blog links for the show are listed with the show notes and references for this week's episode. If you would like to leave the show an honest review on Facebook or iTunes also, then I would appreciate that very much. It does all help. Or if you've enjoyed the episode and you want to hear unique content in the form of 10 bonus episodes to date, plus other offers, then you can also support the show on Patreon for a monthly cost of less than the price of 10 songs on a pub jukebox. It also means that I don't have to live on cat food during the winter. I hope that you found the case as interesting a one as I did, and also an informative one. Make sure to look up the picture of Robert Healy that I've posted on the show's Instagram account. Does he match your image of a brutal double murderer? And please also remember Grieber and Marie over this, abused, murdered and dumped naked in a shallow grave with no dignity whatsoever. What a very, very tragic crime. That's about it from me for another week here. Thanks very much for joining me for this story. I'll be back next True Crime Thursday with another tale. Maybe a bit of a lighter one next week, but who knows. I do chop and change the order on a whim, don't I? I hope that you can join me anyway. I have been, and of course, still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you all again soon. Take care, folks. Thanks very much, and goodbye for now.